Berlin's Communist Congress transforms itself into a parliament and chooses Berle Wilhelm Peck, Germany's Communist number one, as president of the new East German state. That night, Berlin echoes again to the rhythm of the jackboots, as with all the trappings of the police state, East Zone Germans stage a so-called spontaneous demonstration. On the Nazis' old stamping ground, Unter den Linden, Berliners see a show that rivals Hitler's best. Hello, and welcome to the Film Photography Podcast, or perhaps I should say Herzlich Willkommen, because today we're going to be discussing East German cameras. I'm Owen McCafferty, and joining me for our discussion on this super interesting topic is an equally interesting guy, Mr. Sam Sherman, and when he recommended East German cameras as a theme, I couldn't say yes quick enough. It's a topic I myself know very little about, it's one I don't think we've talked about at length on the show before. And when Sam is involved, I know it's going to be educational, it's going to be interesting, and it's always going to be entertaining. When I was preparing for our show today, it dawned on me that some of our listeners may be too young to remember a time when Germany was split as two countries, West Germany and Communist East Germany. So to give you some context into our discussion, I thought it would be a good idea to have a super brief sort of Sparknotes type overview of post-war German history so that you're armed with at least a bit more knowledge before Sam and I get on the phone and start discussing East German cameras. This isn't a, uh, a, a history podcast, so don't panic. I'm, we're not going to spend 30 minutes discussing the intricacies of post-war Germany. I just want to give you some really basic bullet points so that you understand what the situation was in Germany at that time, because that is what makes East German cameras so different and unique from cameras that were produced in West Germany and other parts of Western Europe. At the end of World War II, Germany, of course, lost the war and was occupied by the Allied forces. And the country was sort of divided by these different zones based on the Allied force that was occupying that geographic uh, area. There was an American zone, a British zone, a French zone, and a Soviet zone. And over time, those allied forces began to have some kind of influence on the local German politics at that time. And essentially, by 1949, two countries become established, West Germany and Communist East Germany. West Germany has is, is basically always been known as, as West Germany. East Germany was had, had the official name of Deutsche Demokratische Republik, or the German Democratic Republic, or GDR or DDR. Uh, that's how Germany remained from about 1949 until uh, it was reunified in 1990 into the Deutschland that we know today. And if you were living in West Germany during that time period, it was almost impossible for you to travel as a, as a normal average citizen to East Germany and vice versa. If you were in East Germany and wanted to travel to West Germany, that was almost impossible, if not impossible for most people. If for those living in East Germany, it was very difficult for the average citizen to get their hands on a Western consumer good for the most part. And cameras is a great example. So East German camera companies began to produce things for East Germans to buy. And of course, because of the relationship that East Germany as a communist country had with the Soviet Union, they could also get goods, cameras specifically, produced elsewhere in the Soviet Union from places like Ukraine or mainland Russia. So the market in East Germany, the camera market specifically, because that's what we're really talking about today, looked very different than the camera market and the goods that were available in West Germany and, and 
really in Western Europe and the Western world. Of course, by the time that East Germany dissolves and, and the country's reunified by 1990, many of those cameras stop being available in Germany, or at least stop being produced in East Germany. And Sam is going to give us some more insight into the details of these East German cameras and the East German camera companies. But that should give you a really basic overview of what we're talking about when we say East Germany and why East German cameras are unique and I think, a very interesting topic. So that is your history lesson for today. Let's go ahead and get Sam on the phone and get this discussion on a roll. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Hello? Hi, Sam. It's Owen. For those of you who haven't listened to any of our interviews with Sam in the past, Sam is a wealth of information on the film industry in general. In addition, he's a director, a producer, an archivist, a, a collector, um, and, and knows just about anything or everything you would want to know about the film industry, which is why our listeners love having him on the, on the show so much. What I'd like to do is explain how I got involved with this. What oh, did I know start. about it? Why did I get involved with it? How did I follow it through? And I guess it's based upon my uh, innate intellectual curiosity, always wanting to know the story behind something. Why is this the case? So how I got involved with it is very simple. When I was a small kid in the 1940s, I used to get Popular Photography magazine, and I learned about different types of cameras there. It enthused me to want to get deeper in photography, when the only camera I owned was the Kodak Box Brownie plastic box camera, non-flash model. That's all I owned. I took pictures with it, but I kept wanting better equipment and kept reading about things, and... In popular photography, I began seeing ads for Kinney, K-I-N-E, Exacta, E-X-A-K-T-A, which was a 35-millimeter camera, and the Kinney stood for Kinematographica, which is motion picture, and it was not a motion picture camera, but it used motion picture film as a still film, which was 35-millimeter film. So that's how the Kinney got into the name, and Exacta was the name of this camera. Uh, there had been earlier models, but using the so-called Kinney film, became known as Kinney Exacta. And uh, I read about this and seemed to have a great advantage over other cameras because it was the first camera, at least 35 millimeter or portable, no, I would not even say portable, the first 35 millimeter camera that would be able to uh, allow the user to view through the taking lens so you didn't have parallax, which was the difference between a viewfinder image and the camera image. So what precisely you saw and framed in your viewfinder, uh, you then photographed on film, which because just about everything, digital cameras and everything today, view through the taking lens. It's no big thing. Right. But in an era when just about nothing was a uh, view through the taking lens camera, it was an innovation. So it's like an but early SLR? It was the first 35-millimeter SLR. Oh, interesting. I did not know that. But there is a background even before that. Now, here I am, a little kid. By the age of 11, I was taking a lot of pictures. I had another 35-millimeter still camera, but I was not happy with it. 
And so I wanted an exacta and used or new for a small kid. This was a camera costing a hundred, two hundred, three hundred dollars. It's just not possible for sure. me to even think about it. So I began looking at ads and photography magazines, plus the Sunday New York Times that had a photography section and store ads for different things. And while they had the Kenny Exacta uh, being advertised, Peerless Camera Store on 43rd Street and Lexington Avenue in Manhattan, they advertised a camera called Practiflex, P-R-A-K-T-I-F-L-E-X, which looked almost exactly like Kenny Exacta. And it viewed through the taking lens had many similar features, and uh, that was selling for forty nine dollars. Wow! So I saved up my money, and with some help from my father, we went to Peerless and bought a Practiflex. And what year would this have been about? This would have been uh, the end of fifty one, beginning of fifty two. We went ahead and brought that home, and of course, it didn't work properly. And we came back, went to Peerless, where they had numbers of these things, and picked one out that looked like it was a little better made and seemed to work properly. And it did work properly. Now, the funny thing about East German cameras is that for years I never knew what the mark on the back of the camera meant. There was a logo that said one, looked like a one and a Q. I never knew what that was. It took many years to find out that it meant first quality. Oh, okay. Which indicated that many things made in East Germany were of less than first quality, <laughs> meaning in somehow not great, could be even defective. Right. And not thrilled to learn about that by practice, not by <laughs> research. Sure. And it worked well. The only defect with it was didn't have flash synchronization. And uh, so I went to a repair place eventually that put it in. And while it would synchronized with flash on what was known as a number 26 or number six bulb that meant it lasted a long time because the the shutter was two cloth curtains black cloth and it traveled as a slit across the image so you needed a bulb that lasted to travel across the image right. rather than just an instantaneous flash. They put in the flash, but they knocked the focusing off on the camera and added a light leak to it, which was fun. So I had years of playing around with that until I got out of that and went to something else, but I still have it. Were these cameras from East Germany that you were seeing uh, you know, in the 50s, were these coming as sort of new exports out of East Germany, or were they coming from some kind of secondhand wholesale market? Well, they never looked quite new. <laughs> they never looked quite <laughs> like a really... <laughs> they just never looked quite new. The point is, they were cameras, and uh, the question is, how did we get to this place? How did I get to a place where I have a Practiflex? I have problems with it. People are kind of demeaning it for different reasons, and I just didn't understand the whole thing. So over time, I decided to do a little research as a pseudo-historian, and this is what I found out. To begin with, Germany was one country. It was a country that had great symphony orchestras and composers. It had beautiful porcelain designers, factories that made great optical lenses, and through this world of photos, painting, and artistry came photography. And a big 
photo industry grew up from maybe the 1900s on. Germany was known for the country of precision cameras. Many types of cameras were made by numbers and numbers of companies in Germany. And there are companies like Voigtlander, pronounced Voigtlander, Zeiss Icon, the camera maker, Carl Zeiss Jena, the lens maker, uh, Certo, C-E-R-T-O, Mentor, uh, all kinds of different companies that made all kinds of different cameras. And early on, at the beginning of photography, there was no roll film. There was glass plates. So that's what they had, a glass plate in a holder. It went in the back, and it was a camera on a tripod with a bellows and called a view camera. Eventually, somebody, maybe in Germany, maybe elsewhere, like Graflex in the United States, which at one time was owned by Kodak, they had um, something called the Graflex, which was a large black box with a hood at the top of it. Also, the idea of holders to take glass plates and eventually holders to take sheet film. As the 1930s came around, a company that had been in Germany uh, for many years, which was a Dutch company called IHAGE, I-H-A-G-E-E, it was an acronym for International Gestellaf something, I don't know what it meant, but sure. it was owned by a Dutchman by the name of Steenburgen, like the actress Mary Steenburgen, the Dutch name. And this company was located with its headquarters in Holland, and they had production facilities, manufacturing in Dresden, Germany. And they made mainly uh, some of these boxy reflex cameras, a lot of folding cameras that used roll film that were cheaper, and things of that nature. By 1933, they came up with the first small single-lens reflex camera called Exacta, and known as uh, Exacta VP, or Exacta Vest Pocket. Now, VP stood for a film that was a roll film, size 127, that was smaller than the popular box brownie film, 120, that fit most box cameras. And this 127 film enabled manufacturers to make a small folding camera that fit into the pocket. And as it was in a pocket, it was called VP for Vest Pocket. In 1933, the Steenburgen Company, or IHAGE, made a reflex camera that took this roll film. So it didn't require the plate film holders, but it was four and a half by six centimeters. And these were made from 1933 to approximately 1940, plus or minus. Now, the IHAGE Company was noticing the success of Leica which was a rangefinder camera or a viewfinder camera, not a reflex camera, but it was something that took motion picture film in rolls, and that was a smaller film than the VP-127. And they decided to make the Exacta into that model. So by 19, late 33, going into 34, 35, they were developing the Kinney Exacta, which was the motion, motion picture film, Kinney, K-I-N-E, and the same Exacta, pretty much of similar design to the VP Exacta. And these cameras had a great advantage because they, they came with the ability to use a lot of interchangeable lenses, as did the VP models, but they had more. They had wide-angle, they had telephoto, they had very long telephoto. So all these different view lenses, you could see the difference in the view 
in the finder because it was single lens reflex with the mirror. So it had an advantage but, over the uh, over the Leica in that respect. It did, but the Leica added a reflex finder in front of the camera to kind of compensate for that. It was a clumsy mess, but that's what they did. Now, at the same time this was going on, the biggest photographic company in Germany or in the world was Zeiss, and they had two divisions, Zeiss Icon that made cameras, Carl Zeiss Jena, J-E-N-A, in the town of Jena, not far from Dresden, they made lenses, they made binoculars, they made microscopes, they made people's glasses, they made anything. Right. Anything that was an optic. And so they had an advantage there. And for that reason, Ihage or Exacta went to Zeiss or Zeiss Icon to have them make the lenses for Exacta cameras, which were uh, a great variety of quality lenses of all different focal lengths. Uh, where Leica made their own lenses or farmed out the production of their lenses. The Exacta had better lenses, and they also were cameras that could be fitted to microscopes and do close-ups of dissected frogs and do anything. They were, they were very popular with doctors and scientists, schools, and it was a very popular camera known as the Kinney Exacta. and was an expensive camera. So I, as a kid, could see the advantage of this. Many of those were used, and they were sold in the used market, and I ended up with the copy of it called the Practiflex. Now, at the same time as Exacta was made in the 1930s, um, the uh, Zeiss company, not to be outdone, they designed their own camera. Now, they had contacts, C-O-N-T-A-X, a series of rangefinder cameras, very high precision, competing with Leica, and they made their own lenses for that. But they decided to uh, make a reflex camera like Exacta that would be a version of the contacts where you could view through the taking lens, but unlike Exacta, where you had to look down into a hood, they had a prism at the top of the camera, so you could look straight into the viewfinder like a normal uh, viewfinder or rangefinder camera. And uh, this was being developed at uh, the late 1930s, towards the beginning of the Second World War, but not actually marketed at the time. Germany uh, was the, the key manufacturing center of cameras and lenses. And when uh, they started the Second World War, they utilized these factories, the German military, to make uh, periscopes for submarines and all kinds of cameras for military use, bomb sites, all kinds of Thing. Right. We, the Allies on our side, the United States and the United Kingdom, were not thrilled with this. So we were always bombing their optical plants and a lot of the companies that existed prior to World War II. I would say World War II started around 1939. Well, by February of 1945, the British and the Americans, the Allies that we were called, went in and bombed Dresden, which was the center of camera production right. and the center of artistry and all these great things. And uh, you see what Dresden looked like. The bombing out of it was horrendous. It's it just rubble. Uh, yeah. It was just rubble, and uh, it was a horrendous mess. And a lot of the companies that existed in the 1930s making cameras in Germany were in Dresden. They ceased to exist. Sure. They were just a disaster. They had smaller factories that were satellite factories that did survive, and a few by around um, 
August of 45, maybe a little earlier, Germany surrendered. And um, now, what did it leave? It left the Russians, who uh, greatly despised the Germans who had mistreated them horrendously. Mm -hmm. They hated them. And the Russians had fought them on the Eastern Front. The Allies had fought them on the Western Front. And that's how Germany was defeated. So it came time for the Allies to decide what they were going to do with Germany. And uh, Stalin, the head of the Soviet Union, also known as Russia, or Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, he'd never want to see Germany allowed to rebuild into one country. So they decided two things. Number one, along with the other allies, that Germany would be partitioned into zones and never allowed to be one country again. So there were three Western zones, the American, the British, and the French. And there was one Eastern zone, which was the called the Russian zone or Soviet zone. It was, it was all of the companies in Germany who still existed, Zeiss and Fotlander and this one and that one. They wanted to rebuild and be selling their products again because maybe a lot of those people were not political and they were not on the side of Hitler, but they did what they were told. So eventually there was a, a meeting of all these different groups Somehow the Soviet sector became isolated. That was more through their efforts of hating the Germans to kind of isolate that sector, where the three Western sectors kind of worked together, the American, British, and French, and they decided eventually to merge that into the Western zone. And the Western zone was more like Western countries, which were people lived in a better way, they rebuilt the country, the Germans who were there weren't particularly mistreated. West Germany became a flourishing economy. And the camera companies that were there, they were making good quality, classic cameras, better quality companies. And Kodak, which owned the Nagel Works, which was a company that went way back, Kodak went back to making cameras and things at the Nagel Works in West Germany, that would be such as the retina folding cameras, very high quality. Yeah, it's, and, am uh, it's amazing to think that uh, very easily some of, some of the cameras that people out there would consider classic, iconic camera companies like Oliflex and Voigtlander and cameras that Kodak were making in Germany, it's amazing to think that there, there could have been a point where none of those would have existed. Uh, if for whatever reason they weren't able to come back, that we wouldn't have a lot of those classic, um, you know, yeah, good true. quality cameras. It's true. it's true. Well, a lot of the factories that were in the Western zone survived the bombing so they could reopen. One of the great companies was um, the uh, company that made Rolaflex and Rolacord, very high quality. They were in the Western zone. So what we have here is two zones of Germany now, the East and the West. Well, the Soviets were not quick to forgive the Germans, and they, they made them work hard, get little money, poor conditions. Two countries, side by side, really part of the same country, but the conditions absolutely different. The Russians, they were very, very uh, unable to deal economically on the world market, as they don't today. They're very poor in manufacturing and trading, and for that reason, they sought dollars, French francs, uh, British pounds, 
all of which could be freely traded all over the world, which was called hard currency. Their currency, Russian rubles, was worth nothing. Right. Nobody would take it. They didn't want it. But they wanted hard currency. So they decided they would exploit the photographic markets for whatever hard currency they could get all over the world. It had nothing to do with what cameras were used in their country, if cameras were used in their country at all. They went ahead with figuring out how they could reactivate the photographic industries and do things for hard currency. Well, the big thing was the word trademark. And the word trademark meant that somewhere in some international tribunal, they determined if products had a trademark based on things that happened before and during the war and what Germany lost and what they didn't lose and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. So after the war, Rolleiflex was able to recapture its trademark. Kodak was able to recapture Retina as a trademark. Other camera companies were able to do that. But the one that was very vital that there were big legal fights over was the word contacts, ah, C-O-N-T-A-X. Right. And that was restarted by Zeiss West uh, as a rangefinder camera, Model 2A and 3A, as they had had in the in the 1930s as Model 2 and 3, right. one with a exposure meter, one without it. The Russians, not to be outdone because they knew how valuable this was, they started remaking uh, the contacts rangefinder cameras. And I wrote a big series of articles on this called The Great Contacts Mystery. <laughs> it's supposed to have never have happened, but it did happen. They started remaking Model 2 and Model 3, branding them contacts, selling them secretly in the United States through small dealers or small ads any way they could mm -hmm. to get their hands on hard currency. They then went ahead, moved this production of these pre-war models into Ukraine to the Arsenal factory where they began manufacturing these cameras and then being that they had lost the trademark rights to the word contacts, calling them Kiev because they were made in the city of Kiev. Ah. So they began duplicating the contacts two and three from the late 1930s and making them precisely again, but in the Soviet Union, which are one of the republics of the Soviet Union, which is uh, uh, Ukraine, in Kiev, and they began making them as uh, Kiev. But because they had a Russian name on it, and we were now in the Cold War, they never sold that in the United States. Nobody would we'll take buy them. It, sure. Nobody would buy it, nobody would take them, except for the early days where they made these Kiev knockoffs and they rebranded them contacts and sold them kind of on the black market. Here I am with uh, this Practiflex. Where did that come from? Well, that was made in the late 30s as a, an imitation of the Kinney Exacta and uh, was made to a high quality in the late 30s. But by 46, 47, when the Russians wanted to get some money out of that, they made them to a cheaper standard with cheaper materials and so on and so forth, but still called them Practiflex, and they had taken over the factory from the legitimate owners. There were le legitimate owners who, who owned it, and that's a long story, too. Sure. Uh, because there were Americans, there were Nazi sympathizers who got in there to take that factory away from the original owners who were Jewish. Uh. And they were lucky to escape Germany with their lives. Sure. So... 
there was a lot of intrigue. It's like watching a Warner Brothers spy movie yeah, of the early Cold, 40s. Yeah, Cold War movie. It's absolutely a spy movie. So what did they do with these cameras? Uh, basically, the United States didn't wish to sell uh, Soviet goods as the Cold War started. So they came up with a means of trading these cameras in Canada for wheat. Wow. Traded them for wheat and somehow black marketed them into the United States where they were sold by Peerless Camera Company. So are you, are you saying Howard. that the Peerless, Peerless Camera Company was maybe involved in some... Um some black market Soviet dealing? Oh, definitely. No <laughs> doubt about it. No doubt about it. That's how these cameras got into the United States. I think I think this so is this is the juiciest uh podcast episode that we've we've got some some real juicy information here. Yeah, no doubt about that. So what else happened? Pre war models of cameras were now restarted by state owned enterprises of the Soviets who now claim to be Serto that made folding cameras. They made a little one called Serto Dolina, D O L L I N A, and they remade that, sometimes as a complete knockoff, sometimes slightly differently. And uh, <clears throat> other pre war models, there was a very famous two and a quarter reflex that was made 120 called the um, Corelli, Reflex Corelli, K O R E L L E. I have no idea what it means, but it was a very good camera. And you can sometimes get a mint one, but they need a little fixing. But they're very good. Uh, 120, 12 pictures, two and a quarter square. You know, I've been collecting cameras since I was a kid. I, I can't think of ever in all of my store uh, trips to antique stores, thrift stores, I've never come across in the wild, except for on eBay, a Russian camera. So were they never... I mean, obviously, they were tr they were trying to get these cameras into the U.S. Were well, you talking about an East German camera or a Russian camera? A, a both. I mean, I've certainly come across you know West German cameras, but I, I can't. Well, East German they... cameras were snuck in here, and they weren't Russian names. So you had Corelli, and you had other ones, and you had Zeiss that was left in in Dresden, um, Zeiss Icon, and they restarted that. So there was a fight for many years over the trademark of the Zeiss name between Zeiss East, Zeiss Archon, and Carl Zeiss in the West. The uh, lens company called Carl Zeiss Jena in the East, J-E-N-A, they made lenses for both the Eastern Zone and the Western Zone. They were on both sides of this equation. So the Russians got a lot of money out of that factory because they made uh, exotic things like the planetarium projector, that huge thing that you see in the Hayden Planetarium that projects onto the top of the roof of the planetarium with the sky and the stars. Right. That's an invention of Carl Zeiss Jena. It was always made in Carl Zeiss Jena before, during, and after the war. They were stopped by international courts, and that stopped them in the United States. They couldn't use anything like Carl Zeissian or Zeiss anything. They just had to stop that completely. But they changed the name of their factory in East German to, because it had a kind of a five-headed uh, tower there, to Pentacon, not Pentagon with a G, but Pentacon, P-N-T-A-C-O-N. And they began making 
all their products under the Pentagon name. So where uh, the uh, Practiflex had been made by a company called KW, Camera with a K, Camera Workstatten, that that became Pentagon, KW. Interesting. And they now designed some other cameras. They made an improved version of the Practiflex called the Practica, and uh, they changed the lens mount from the uh, Practiflex, which was a 40-millimeter 40 millimeter screw mount and very unusual, to a 42-millimeter screw mount that Carl Zeissiena had invented for the pre-war contacts reflex. Mm-hmm. And then they began making that pre-war contacts reflex in the eastern zone, originally called contacts S, then contacts D. But while they continue to sell it as that in eastern countries, uh, that was like Czechoslovakia and others, and the United States stopped them. So they then changed the name of that camera to Pentacon, like the name of the factory, with a 42-millimeter screw mount. Now, the 42-millimeter screw mount was on the Pentacon uh, and on the Practica, and then the Japanese picked it up, and they used it on their first uh, or second SLR, which was a Pentax, a Sahi Pentax, as a 42-millimeter mount that came from East German design. And then that 42-millimeter mount became known as the Pentax mount or the 42-millimeter mount. And it was almost a standard mount many manufacturers used, but many other manufacturers sought to invent their own bayonet mounts proprietary to their branded cameras. So if you bought their camera, it was Nikon or Minolta or whatever it is, you need to buy their lenses to fit it. That was the, the point of that. But getting back to East Germany, because it had the scientists there before the war, they had the great mechanical innovations in cameras and in lens design, too, in uh, Carl Zeissiena. So their cameras, while they might not be as well made as the Western Zone cameras, they had greater unusual innovations of different types technologically. And uh, other cameras that were made there was a knockoff of the pre-war Corelli called Meister Corelli, meaning Master Corelli, Mm -hmm. but a cheap kind of a flimsy thing called the Master Reflex in the United States. It took me many years to acquire one, but it was definitely not a Master Reflex. It was (laughs) kind of a less Master and more Reflex. Right. And um, then... They went ahead and took a camera that had been designed by a company called Benson, Kurt Benson, and it made a a camera that was a two and a quarter boxy single lens reflex, kind of a 120 version of these big sheet film reflexes, but it used 120 film for 12 pictures. And that camera was a great innovation because it was copied in Sweden by Victor Hasselblad, who was a great fan of that uh, camera known as the Primar Flex, later known as the Primar Reflex in the United States, and he copied it as the Hasselblad. So all of these 12 on 120, two and a quarter single lens reflex cameras, they're all copied from the German Primar Flex. Now that 
that German Primarflex was made in the Black Forest of Saxony uh, and uh, near the town of Gerlitz, which is mm -hmm. on the border with Poland. And um, it was not well made uh, after the war. The ones that were made during the war, highly precise, could be working for many years. The ones made after the war, if they weren't completely overhauled by a clever technician, they couldn't work at all. So as a matter of fact, Sterling Howard, which was a camera store in the Bronx that also did mail order, they sold East German equipment, and they sold the Primarflex, which was being sold by a legitimate importer called Ercona. They were selling it under their own brand called Astroflex, A-S-T-R-A-F-L-E-X. And the difference was the Primar Reflex was all the 1Q quality versions of that. All the junky ones that didn't work, they were sold to Sterling Howard, private brand them as... Um, Astroflex. Well, I met the man who worked for that company. I said, what was the difference? The regular one sold for $300. The Astroflex sold for 150 He said, the Astroflex was all the broken East German cameras <laughs> that never worked. He said, my job was fixing them so they would pass and be able to be sold. Wow. And I, I met him and talked to him. I eventually photographed him holding one of those cameras, but he absolutely was the one that fixed every one of them. When I first got one that didn't work, I could not find anybody in the New York area who could repair that, fix it, this, whatever, sure. nothing. Nobody would even touch it. And if I went to camera repair places, they'd say, why are you interested in East German cameras? Are you an East German? <laughs> they were so politically against anything to do with Russia, Eastern Zone, sure. whatever, you know. So I learned to fix that camera myself. I, I made my own repair text, and I was able to repair it. I figured out what was wrong with those cameras and was able to repair them. I even I wrote, wrote that somewhere at some point in a magazine, and somebody wrote to me, please, would you fix my camera? I'll pay you to do it. I did one repair job for someone other than myself <laughs> to fix one of those cameras, but I learned precisely what was wrong with it. But it's, it wasn't a bad camera. It was the design and execution, and the kind of metals they used were poor, bad metallurgy. The gears weren't well polished. They didn't go smoothly. They didn't have good lubrication. If you did all the right things, you could get them to work, but uh, that was like any any mechanical device so of any kind. Would you say that the you know all of the um, the sort of innovation and mastery and craftsmanship that uh, you know, before World War II, Germany had been known for in the photographic world. Would you say that all of that sort of ended up flowing into West Germany and East Germany was sort of got the, the short end of the stick in terms of quality craftsmen and, and factories and, and such? I would, say, I would say to a degree that is true. That is true to a degree. However, the Russians were great at keeping slaves so a lot of good designers that work for uh, Zeiss Icon and that work for Exacta, they were trapped in East Germany. Mm -hmm. And they put up plenty of fences like the Berlin Wall and plenty of searchlights and machine guns. And <laughs> these guys stayed in place. You know what I mean? Right. There's something very interesting on the Internet if you can find it. It's the story of the Pentagon factory and East German cameras and where they closed everything and how the, the factory was left in ruins 
in the 90s when the thing was closed or whatever it is. It's just an amazing thing if you can find that story. Sure. I don't know where it is. It's somewhere on the Internet. But it's very interesting. So we have, but, uh, we have about five minutes left before we have to wrap up. And I, I was wondering if maybe you could sort of give us an overview of what happened to these, you know, most of these manufacturers in East Germany after, you know, unification in 1990. I mean, did, did all of these places go away or did did any of them stick around, um, you know, and, and manufactured after? Well, the Pentagon the... had stayed around. It, it, and according to my seeing this destruction of the factory on the Internet, the factory had been around, which had been uh, Zeiss Icon. That lasted quite a long time. It had that five-sided uh, tower on it to be Pentagon. Um, that lasted quite a long time. A Hage had long closed, but it merged into Pentagon, mm-hmm. and uh, exactas were no longer made. The last exacta was a Pentagon camera or a Practica with an exacta name on it. So that ceased being made. Uh, there was a big fight between the Dutch owners of uh, the Hage and Exacta Company and the Russians. And uh, I don't remember how that ended. Probably not well. But uh, in the Pentagon factory, the best camera they made was uh, the Practice 6, later to be called the Pentagon 6, two and a quarter single lens reflex. And then later, that was sold to a West German company, and it was then called Exacta 66, which was the name of an Exacta 120 camera, but it was the Pentagon 6 with a new, thicker black covering on it, and it was the same camera. And there's a website that explains all this you can go to called pentagon6.com. P-N-T-A-C-O-N-S-I-X dot com, and that will explain all that. I don't believe there are any camera companies left in East Germany, and the reunification of Germany east and west with the Berlin Wall being torn down, I can't say that the people in East Germany lived as well. They lived better, but not as well as the rest of Germany. I think they still suffered through it. The other thing I didn't mention was the emergence of Japan after the war as the number one photographic country for lenses and cameras and innovation. And they just wiped out Germany East and West. Yeah. Uh, talk about a great con- talk about a great topic for our next discussion. I mean that that would be really interesting to delve into. Well Thank you so much. As always, Sam, you've given me a whole list of things to research that sound super interesting. I'm sure our listeners would will also be doing lots of Googling, and, and I wouldn't be surprised if some of these cameras start to, to get more expensive on eBay after people listen to this. Um, well, I wish them luck. They're interesting <laughs> curiosity. Absolutely. And uh, I appreciate your time, and I know we'll talk really, really soon. My pleasure. Be well. All right. You too, Sam. Take care. Be safe. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 
All right, everybody, that was Sam Sherman talking to us today about East German cameras. Always love having Sam on the show. He's always got so many interesting and obscure topics to talk about, and he always gets my my list of Googling terms and cameras to Google always fills up after a conversation with Sam. So thank you, thank you so much for listening. Uh, I'm sure we're going to have Sam on the show again really soon. Uh, if you want to get in touch with me, if you have any comments or feedback, um, you can certainly... Go ahead and send me an email. That's O-W-E-N, Owen, at filmphotographyproject.com. And I'll be more than happy to answer your questions, send them to someone else at the FPP if you have a question for them, or if you need to get in touch with Sam and ask him a question, I'll be more than happy to field that question for you. So thanks, everybody, for listening, and please stay safe, be healthy, and we'll, we'll see you back here real soon.